0: Hello, and welcome to 1867 and all that. Season two, episode 10, MacDonald versus MacDonald. In early 1862, we come back to Canada just after the crisis of the Trent affair. The garrisons were stuffed with British troops sent over the sea in a mad rush in December. The local militia had been called out in a general patriotic fervor, fearful but supportive had left British North America feeling united in a purpose of not being American. Yet when the Canadian government actually got down to planning for the future, for spending money to make sure, if war with America broke out, that they would be better prepared, well, that's when things began to fall apart. We left last day with the head of the government's Western Section, John A. Macdonald, named as Minister of Militia Affairs, and heading a commission of inquiry into the matter of Canadian defence. We begin today when the Commission had quickly and efficiently finished its business. Led by Macdonald, it recommended serious action that Canada create an active militia of 50,000 men to be fully armed and to drill regularly for defence. Another 50,000 were to be ready to be called up if or when necessary. This was to be a major step up from what had come before. Recall, in the days before the rebellion, all men between the ages of 18 and 60 were ostensibly available to be called into service and were to drill once per year. Now, the government meant to create a much better prepared force. There was, though, that pernickety question of cost the uniforms, the weaponry, and the manpower. This was not an inconsequential amount. The other dramatic part of the plan was the proposal that if enough volunteers did not step forward to fill the available spots, then the government would resort to a lottery to select names. That is, it would conscript Canadians into the militia. The British government, you can be sure, would be pleased. This was supposed to have been the purpose of responsible government after all, so that colonies could begin to cover the major costs of their own defense. In March of 1862, in the aftermath of the Trent Affair, the British Parliament had in fact passed a motion indicating that colonies should bear the bulk of the costs of their own defense. But what about the Canadians themselves? Wasn't the whole point of being in the empire that the imperial government took care of these things? You know, the glorious British Navy protecting the seas. The problem for the Canadian government at present was that almost no one trusted them with money. The Cartier and MacDonald administration had now been in power since 1854, and it stayed in power in 1858, you'll remember, by somewhat dubious means. As with all governments, it attracted the usual amount of hangers-on who demanded patronage. It spent money, and 19th century Canadians were certain, not without reason, that whenever governments spent money, they usually did so in extravagant ways to garner themselves support and to line someone's pockets. There was the whole matter of the seat of government, of the new capital to be at Ottawa. Contractors were erecting elaborate new buildings there and the costs were mounting, far higher than what was promised. To many, all of this smelt a good deal like corruption stew. And then there was, for Macdonald, the problem of representation by population. I told you we were going to hear a lot about this concept this season. By early 1862, even ardent conservatives in Canada West now frequently demanded that the government support the measure. In the last session, both grit and conservative members had moved for rep by pop. And when they were defeated, as they were bound to because of the opposition of French-Canadians, MacDonald found that a majority of members from his region, including large numbers of government supporters, had voted against MacDonald's own policy. How much longer could the government really hold under these conditions? The tumult broke out in full when MacDonald introduced his militia bill into the Assembly in early 1862. The opposition immediately set upon them, and their first question, how much would this cost? The problem was that John A. wasn't around to say. He was, as the papers said, ill. What this really meant is that MacDonald was on a bender. He was drunk. Day after day, in early May of 1862, as the members and the public debated the Militia Bill, MacDonald remained ill. Only after more than a week did Macdonald re-enter the House to lead the second reading of the bill. By this time, it would seem that he and Cartier had decided that the jig was up. When the Speaker called for a vote on the Militia Bill, a narrow majority voted it down. A section of French Canadians abandoned the government. Perhaps because of the, the costs or the heavy demands of the Militia Bill, Or perhaps to show their dislike that after the recent cabinet shuffle had created on the cabinet a majority of ministers who had spoken in favour of Rep by Pop. Whatever the the precise reason, the militia bill was gone and the House ejected Cartier and Macdonald as a government. It's possible though that Macdonald at least was pleased. He might even have planned the whole debacle or at least allowed it to happen. If the government was bound to fall, then what better issue to choose to go down fighting for your country, for patriotism and loyalty? Let's see, he essentially was saying, what anyone else can do. With the fall of the liberal conservative coalition, yes, at the fall of another government, the governor general glanced around and selected an unlikely pair of figures to replace them. If Carche and Macdonald couldn't work, and if Brown and his lower Canadian ally Dorian were still an impossibility, that left one other option, one as yet not tried, but one which I've been trying to keep in your minds at least somewhat. And that is the possibility that another John Macdonald could take the lead, not John A. Macdonald, but John Sandfield Macdonald. And yes, if you now wish all of these 19th century Scottish Canadians could select some more unique names, let me tell you I'm I'm with you on this one. But they didn't. So, let me fully introduce you to the most important prime minister named John MacDonald that you likely know almost nothing about, John Sandfield MacDonald. I'll double barrel him and refer to him as Sandfield MacDonald to make things easier for us. You might remember that I've referred to Sanfield Macdonald before as coming from the eastern stretch of Upper Canada as, and as an advocate of the, the double majority principle in Canadian politics. That is the idea that government should largely work by the cooperation of majorities from each of the two Canadas. First really enunciated back in the 1840s by Denis uh, Benjamin Viget, in his attempt to win away a large chunk of French Canadians from La Fontaine in the pre-responsible government days. Double majority principles had been mooted many times, much lauded but also frequently ignored because they were so impractical. Almost no government could actually govern this way, a fact that Sanfield MacDonald was going to find out all too soon himself. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Sanfield MacDonald is actually a fascinating guy in his own right the son of Scottish Catholics who had fled the Scottish Highlands. His mother died at a young age and he was sent away to school where he excelled. He went into law and was mentored by none other than William Draper, that honourable Tory legal mind who had been a Tory leader in the 1840s. Sanfield MacDonald eloped with the daughter of a Louisiana senator In fact, his father-in-law went so far down the path of Southern honor that he ended up dying in a duel. Sanfield MacDonald first entered the legislature back in 1841 under Lord Sydenham. He had a tendency to always find himself partly on the out, always a moderate and not quite agreeing with the majority tendency. Initially a Tory, he moved over to the reformers in the mid-1840s and was actually part of the LaFontaine Baldwin government that brought in responsible government. But as the reform coalition fractured in the 1850s with the rise of the clear grit faction, he found himself in the old fashioned section, neither a clear grit nor quite a supporter of George Brown either. He was a Catholic and a moderate and believed strongly in cooperation with lower Canadians and believed in the existing union. He was given a a ministerial post in George Brown's very short-lived two-day government of 1858, but that obviously went nowhere. It was in 1856 that he made his mark by giving a powerful speech on the concept of the double majority. And ever since, he had kept up his regular proclamations that this is how Canada should be governed. So, with the fall of Cartier and Macdonald, under pressure over defense, but also with fraying tensions within that government over representation by population, the governor general turned to Sandfield Macdonald as a senior member of the assembly who seemed, at least on the surface, to offer an alternative path to forming a government. From the start though, it was clear that the road would be treacherous. For one, Sanfield Macdonald's lower Canadian ally was Louis-Victor Sicotte, the man who had just abandoned the Cartier-McDonald government by leading a group of former Bleu French Canadians against the government on the Militia Bill. In fact, Sicot might have expected to be Prime Minister himself and not sandfield MacDonald, but the governor and the British government were not at all keen to have this figure who had just defeated the Militia Bill as head of the Canadian government. But Canada did have a responsible government, and so Seacott was there, at least as head of the lower Canadian section. The problem was that neither Seacott nor Sanfield MacDonald actually had a large following personally. They were somewhat ornery moderates who usually found themselves at the edges of their respective groups. Respected, but with only a small number of followers. And then there was the impractical double majority idea. What on earth would they do when an issue divided the sections? Wouldn't it simply place the government on constantly shaky ground, ever ready to fall on the slightest pretext? Still, without any other options seemingly, and there had just been an election in the previous year, everyone made to carry on to see if Sanfield MacDonald and Sicott could make a go of it. One of the first big projects for the Canadian government, no matter who led it, was railways and the idea of an intercolonial railway in particular. Remember, the Trent crisis had recently shown up how ludicrous it was that the eastern terminus of Canada's Grand Trunk Line was in another country altogether in Portland, Maine. This spurred the British government to action and it also whet the appetites of railway companies and their promoters. Something had to be done to complete a railway line between Canada and the other British maritime colonies. So, first up for the sandfield Macdonald government was a conference in Quebec City, which brought together the leading politicians from the Canadas, alongside representatives from the colonies of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. The British North Americans managed to get along quite well and soon worked out a deal which saw the two maritime colonies agree to split the costs of financing the project with the Canadians. But when the colonists sailed to London to float the idea past the British government and raise funds, the whole thing threatened to fall apart. The Canadians wanted their contribution to the intercolonial railway to count as part of their contribution to defence. After all, they said, wasn't the main impetus for the whole rail project a result of the Trent crisis? And then, of course, the need to move troops. Surely this could count as defence spending. The Duke of Newcastle, you'll remember him from his role escorting the Prince of Wales to North America back in 1860, Well, he called the idea monstrous. But in the end, the whole thing fell apart actually over something else, the the technicalities of financing and the British insistence on the creation of a sinking fund, essentially a way to uh, more carefully manage the railway debt. The Canadians in particular were already in financial trouble. The sandfield MacDonald government had come into power by defeating an extravagantly expensive government measure, the Militia Bill. Now, here they had gone off and planned a wildly expensive railway venture. They hummed and hawed and then temporarily, at least, backed away. Later in the spring, they would agree to survey a potential route, but for the moment, they wouldn't commit further to joining by rail with their maritime colleagues. That's possibly because the Sanfield MacDonald government had more things to worry about. Separate schools for Catholics. In the early 1860s, Richard Scott was fixated with the idea of improving the lot of Catholics in Canada West. Scott was a Catholic legislator from Ottawa, one of the very few people who had been ecstatic that his city, Ottawa, had been made capital. And each year... In this period, he introduced a private member's bill meant to broaden the rights of Catholics to a separate education. Each year, the House managed to deflect the bill, defeating it outright or delaying it. Even as Sandfield, MacDonald and Sicott took office in 1862, Parliament was in the midst of debating yet another version of Scott's Catholic Schools Bill. Realizing that nothing was gonna come of it in that session, Scott removed the bill but with a promise to bring it back the next year. It's important to recall here that public schooling in Canada at this time did not mean secular schooling. It was assumed that schools ought to be Christian and to include religious instruction. The key point though was for it to be non-denominational, to not pick sides between Methodist and Anglican, Catholic or Presbyterian. That at least is what George Brown would have liked. Brown was an ardent believer in the separation of church and state. Schools could be Christian insofar as almost every single Canadian at the time was Christian, but for Brown and those like him, it was a sign of tolerance and public spirit for all denominations to share the same institution and that individual denominations did not control the schools. That's one way of looking at it. To others, and this included Scott, but also those like Darcy McGee, Catholics ought to have their own separate institutions because they were fundamentally different from Protestants. So Scott came back with a bill in 1863 that expanded the rights of Catholics both to establish their own schools and, more importantly, to receive funds from both the municipal and wider government for doing so. There was a compromise in the bill which allowed teachers to be regulated by the colonial government, but generally it allowed for publicly funded Catholic schools. For Catholics in Canada West, it gave them, as they saw it, the same rights as Protestants had in Canada East, separate schools for their minority religious group. Both sides saw the others as intolerant bigots Catholics claimed that the anti-separate school forces wanted to deny them a basic right to have their own schools. Public school defenders, on the other hand, argued that a, a truly progressive society could only be built by those who sat side by side together in schools and did not hive themselves off into separate institutions. And yes, if these arguments seem familiar, it's because you can still find this kind of debate around today, over whether different cultural groups should have separate and unique institutions to reflect their difference, or should they join with the wider society in the same kinds of institutions. About the only thing you can say is that whenever the issue arises, you'll find a divided population and resentments surrounding those differences. Scott's bill was a problem for the Sandfield MacDonald government. Sandfield MacDonald himself was Catholic but he also knew how unpopular the bill was in Upper Canada and with his own supporters. Sure enough, Scott's bill passed through the assembly, bolstered by huge support in Canada East. The problem was that a majority of members from the Western section, including most reformers, and remember, Sandfield Macdonald was a reformer, well, they voted against Scott's bill, but pass it did. Catholic schooling would be bolstered, but against the wishes of a majority of upper Canadian members, and against the very principle of the double majority on which Sanfield MacDonald's government was supposed to stand. Now, Sanfield MacDonald tried to explain away that this wasn't hypocritical by arguing that it had been a private member's bill and so not a test of the government. He may have been technically correct, but the hypocrisy still rankled. It didn't help that the Canadas were riven that winter and spring with yet another tale of injustice out of a murder trial. Whenever you want political controversy in these years, it seems what really helps to put fire in the blood is a nice little controversial murder. Enter the Aylward Affair. The whole sordid tale occurred on a remote farm north of the village of Bancroft, right up against the Canadian Shield on the kind of remote and dubiously rocky farmsteads the government was still giving out in the 1850s and 1860s. It involved two feuding families, the Monroes and the Aylwards, who lived across the road from one another. Mary and Richard Aylward had moved into the area only a few years earlier, and they were struggling. They bickered incessantly with their neighbors, the Monroes, and most of the fighting that year seems to have been about the Monroe chickens who were running free and picking at the Aylward's meager wheat field. And yes, if you're wondering, we are indeed going to delve into a murder caused by runaway chickens. The details of exactly what happened are somewhat contested, but it seems that Monroe and his son went over to the Aylward's in search of their missing chickens. The Munroes soon got into a shouting match with the Aylward's, and it definitely didn't help that both sides were carrying guns. Richard Aylward charged after Monroe, who was traipsing through the Aylward's wheat field. The two men struggled over a a gun, and Monroe shouted for his son to shoot Aylward. But Aylward grabbed control of his shotgun and shot the boy who ran screaming away. He's actually going to be all right if being shot and then watching your father die counts as all right. Meanwhile, Aylward and Monroe Sr. continued to struggle until Mrs. Aylward came crashing onto the scene carrying a scythe. She whacked at Monroe twice, once slicing into his arm and the next time taking a huge gash out of his head bleeding and mortally wounded, Monroe crawled back to his own farm. He managed to live for another 12 days before finally succumbing to his injuries. Justice traveled slow in remote regions, but eventually constables arrived to arrest the Aylwards and take them south to Belleville for trial. But the delay gave Mrs. Aylward time to tell a neighbor that she had killed Monroe, and that she had planned to do it, and, when the neighbor scoffed, to show her the bloody scythe. This was, as you can imagine, not so good for her subsequent defense. In Belleville, they faced trial before none other than William Draper, the former Tory leader and Canadian parliamentary leader, who had actually retreated from politics into the judiciary. I won't get into all of the back and forth of the trial, but a few things are striking. For one, both the husband and wife faced murder charges together. And witnesses noted that although the incident might have seemed to be a sudden fight, in fact, Mary Aylward had boasted that she was going to kill Monroe. And one witness even claimed to have seen her sharpening the scythe, claiming, unlikely for the time of year, that it was to harvest the wheat. The jury found the Aylwards guilty and sentenced them both to hang for their crimes, though they did recommend mercy. Now this is when things got politically interesting. There was, of course, the drama of executing husband and wife, of judicially killing a mother with three young children, the youngest, a mere babe, who had stayed with his mother in jail. But then there was the religious element. The Alewards were Catholic and the Monroes were Protestant. Now, nothing about the feud itself suggested a religious motivation, but in the Canadas of the time, observers could still wonder, and they did. And when Sanfield MacDonald's government turned down the request for clemency and allowed the executions to take place, well, that really sparked things off. More than 5,000 spectators gathered in December of 1862 to watch the executions. With the Usual gruesome crowd scenes, shouting for the hangman to hurry to his work and then gawking, straining to watch as the Aylward's bodies twitched on the ropes. From across Canada, in Canada East especially, but also in the Catholic portions of Canada West, came the cry that justice wasn't possible for Catholics in this country. Just look at what happened to the Aylward's. This was the context in which the separate school debate happened in early 1863. Catholic-Protestant tensions always simmered close to boiling, and here were two events within a few months, each giving one side reason to be sure, absolutely sure, that they were the victims of injustice. In fact, after Scott's separate schools bill passed, Orangemen grew so irate that some determined to fight back. The bill passed in early March, and that is of course the time of year for the annual St. Patrick's Day festival and parade. Here's where my own town of Peterborough, Ontario, or Upper Canada, comes into the story. With a sizable local Irish population, Catholic and Protestant, Peterborough was rife with orange-green conflict. And this year, it seems a gang of almost 500 orangemen came into town, as one of the papers put it, armed to the teeth with fouling pieces, pistols, and bludgeons. And what's more, they even brought a cannon. They first confronted the Irish Catholics who were gathered in the market square, preparing to start a march up to the cathedral. Seeing the armed mass facing them, the St. Patrick's Day revelers decided to put down their banners and retreat. But the orange men weren't done, and so they headed to the church and then aimed the cannon at parishioners to ensure that, as they saw it, ribbon men couldn't use St. Patrick's Day to parade their anti-British revolutionary banners. The shopkeepers in the town closed their doors and locals hid inside to avoid confrontations. In the end, it was peaceful, but the local Uh, paper was filled with embarrassment at what it saw as the horrible behavior of the Orangemen who had behaved so terribly. This didn't mean that the editor didn't admit the injustice of things like the Corrigan murder and the Gavazzi riots and the unwise words of Irish Republicans, but still it deplored the excitable on both sides and the way they inflamed passions. So Tensions were rather high in the Canada's in the early 1863. In early April, the sandfield MacDonald government made things worse for itself by introducing a new militia bill. And this time, they completely reversed themselves and introduced a bill that was just about as elaborate and expensive as that which had defeated the previous government and against which Sandfield had come to power that set up John A. Macdonald and the old government, now the opposition, nicely. John A., now fully sober, got to his feet in early May and moved a measure of non-confidence in the Sandfield Macdonald government. Yes, Macdonald said he had no confidence in Macdonald. The case was a strong one. A government that came into office demanding belt tightening and cutting of costs had then gone off on a plan to build an expensive intercolonial railway. A government that came into power against a militia bill now was proposing an, an even worse militia bill. And a government that said it was in favor of the double majority had just passed a separate school measure on Upper Canada against the wishes of that section, completely disregarding its own stated principles. To put it mildly, John Sandfield MacDonald was in trouble. The debate lasted for 10 days, but when the final vote came, the Assembly voted against the sitting government. sandfield Macdonald's government fell, and the Assembly was to be dissolved. Macdonald brought down McDonald and showed yet again just how unstable was the system of government in the Canadas. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all that. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Better yet, head over to our Patreon page and sign up to be an official 1867 and all that patron. It's only $5 a month. And by the way, thanks so much to those who have already become supporters. Next week, Sanfield McDonald gets one more kick at the can, but he won't kick it very far before that other MacDonald and his old friends are back on top once again. As parliamentarians move to Quebec City for the 1864 Session of Parliament, things have never been more unstable and uncertain. And alongside everyone else, George Brown is back. We'll find out how things went on his star-faded trip to Scotland, And why it took a magnanimous gesture from the newlywed Brown, the man who used to be a governmental impossibility, to finally create a new coalition government that was truly unprecedented and which would finally get this whole process of confederation underway. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.